Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. I'm Kevin Fulton. I'm a professor, podcast host, and today we're going to talk about the kind of nexus between agriculture and medicine. So we talk a lot about agriculture and the good things biotechnology can do, maybe some of the food it can improve, or maybe environmental solutions. And we talk a lot about medicine, the new ways in which medical breakthroughs from biotechnology change the quality of life from people suffering from debilitating disease. But in between agriculture and medicine is the question of food and diet. And these areas are really controversial, not necessarily because the science is controversial, but because of an overlay of misinformation, of fads, of you know, what's happening today. And it makes it very difficult for people to sort out what's real and what's not. So when you come across an opportunity to discuss food, diet, and associated topics uh, with someone who has a good handle on the subject, you take that opportunity. So today we're talking with Craig Good, and Craig uh, has been around for a while with uh, Pixar and some other places, but has recently written the book Relax and Enjoy Your Food. And it's a very highly readable, very highly readable, <laughs> highly readable uh, text that outlines a lot about the mistakes that people make with regard to food, a lot of food myths, but also a lot of our cognitive bias and how that plays into uh, schemes to make us feel uh, either inadequate about the choices we make or peddle completely bad choices altogether. So with that really long intro, I guess we don't need to talk anymore, Craig. <laughs> that, that, that was perfect. You should have written the book. <laughs> you got a handle on this. No, I, mean, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I was able to get through it really quickly too because I, I waited to the last minute, and I, I, but it still was a real easy read. And I appreciate so much of what's in there. It's a lot of the topics we talk about here. So in your background, it says that you worked for Pixar 31 years. And you certainly have participated in science communication. You've been you know, working with Skeptic's Guide and other places. But what was the impetus to write a book about food and diets? And, and more importantly, why would anyone trust information from someone, you know, from you over, say, just the average Internet expert? Yeah, where do I get off, huh? So <laughs> to answer the second part first, I, I'm wearing my science communicator hat here, and I make no claim to be an expert in any of this. You know, I'm, I'm not an academic, I'm not a scientist, but what I have gotten good at is recognizing experts and uh, being able to figure out what the scientific consensus is. And it turns out in the subject of food, the consensus has been pretty steady for a long time. It's not you know, it's not rocket surgery, as the as the joke goes. Uh, as far as the impetus for writing it, uh, it was a nexus of a number of things. Uh, a few years ago, well, 
a little over 20 years ago, when uh, my daughter was born, you know, I, as many fathers do, uh, had a sympathetic weight gain during the pregnancy. And I thought, well, I want to lose some weight. And I didn't know anything about it. So I just kind of ate less. And that worked for a while. I got rid of like 20 pounds that way. And then uh, I've always had an interest in food anyway. I've enjoyed, you know, enjoy cooking and I like learning about that stuff. And then I discovered this app that would let me count calories. And I thought, well, I'll try that. And so I just put myself on a calorie budget and that worked. I got rid of another 30 pounds that way. Uh, as you may have noticed in the book, I don't necessarily recommend that method to everybody, but if you're like me, it works fine. And then uh, that kind of turned me into a raving foodie because I thought, well, if I've got a food budget to spend, I'm spending it on the good stuff, right? <laughs> I want to eat stuff I like. So uh, while that's going on, then eventually uh, daughter turns about 13 and I hear from their doctor, uh, you're child has anorexia nervosa, the most deadly mental illness there is. You know, that brought me up short. That was a pretty scary thing to hear. So working with my daughter for a few years, fighting off an eating disorder made me realize that really more important than what you eat is your relationship with food. And so, uh, Years later, I was answering lots of questions on Quora, and I noticed that the very same questions kept coming up over and over and over. So I thought, well, I'll just put them in a book. That's really good. And, and much of that, uh, the food fads and much of the sentiment towards food is coming from a fear of modernity, as you mentioned in the text. What are some good examples of that? Well, Fear of modernity is why we have legends like Atlantis or the Garden of Eden. Um, it's this romantic notion that things were somehow better long ago. And it's not really true. <laughs> things are really better now. Um, and that fear drives pretty much every food fad. And it's used by uh, what I call fear-based marketing to sell things like organic food or non-GMO. You know, that, I mean, there's, there's no reason to avoid GMOs unless you're just afraid of technology, right? So that's, and that phrase I got from a, a wonderful book I highly recommend called The Gluten Lie, which was uh, a book about food written by a theologian. Yeah. Yeah. Alan Levinowitz, right? It's, uh, it's, yeah. It's, it's yeah. a wonderful uh, book. And I promise, I promise anyone who reads it, you will laugh your head off during the last chapter. And that's all I <laughs> Well, talking more about that idea of it's not the food, it's our relationship with food, is that you mentioned in the book, there are no bad foods, just bad diets. And then you go on to talk about concepts that we are bombarded with all the time. And it's like junk food, superfood, all that stuff. So what's the real story? Okay, so the real story is that food gives you some combination of the same basic seven things. You can get carbs, proteins, fats, those are your macros. You can get uh, vitamins, things like that, your, and minerals. You can get hydration and you can get fiber. And that's pretty much it. And if it gives you some of that, then it's a food and it can be part of a healthy diet. So a big part of my theme in the book is to think in terms of variety 
and the overall diet. You know, something I say in there is that what you eat today doesn't matter, but what you eat this month matters a lot, right? So rather than stressing about, oh, you know, am I getting enough of my protein today or have I had too much sugar today or what? Just, just kind of relax, enjoy your food and think about, well, this month I've done fine. I've had a big variety. I can have whatever I want today. So it's more of an acute, or more of a lifestyle adjustment than an acute thing, right? So you're you're looking at months rather than days. But just to, okay, so to tie in with that though, you do mention in the book that 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 while a healthy diet can reduce the risk of cancer, it's important that to note that it doesn't prevent or treat cancer. So, so I really want to get that sorted out because it says you can reduce your risk, but it doesn't prevent. How are those things different? Um, the difference would be if you're picking a food because you think this food will help me prevent cancer, that's probably not the helpful approach. If you think my overall diet is going to help lower the odds of cancer, because, it, you know, as, as you know, Cancer isn't a thing where you can say this caused it or that caused it, but different things you do, decisions you make can increase or decrease your risk of certain cancers, right? Right, right. As, as they dovetail with genetics. It, it, yeah. And with all, I mean, it's, it's complicated. There, I, I, the book is really simple, but, you know, deep down the science can be very complicated. Uh, I was trying to aim at just what do people need to know to just make their everyday life decisions about what to eat? Um, I mean, it's, it's fun to follow the science about, you know, every little detail, but uh, you know, th there was, uh, I believe I mentioned in the book, a couple of uh, scientists decided to find out what foods cause or don't cause cancer. And they took 80 random ingredients from cookbooks and looked them up and found that for every single ingredient, there were studies that showed they increased cancer and studies that showed they decreased. So it's, yeah. just, it's just too noisy to go picking and choosing that way. But there are things we know, like if you don't smoke, you've greatly lowered your risk of a number of cancers and other bad outcomes. Well, along the line of cancer, a lot of people would say that cancer is induced by genetically engineered crops, so the GMO issue, or I should say ingredients from genetically engineered crops. So why is that such an important topic when we look at the discussion of diet and orthorexia? Yeah, well, it's that fear of modernity making people suspect that GMOs do that because there just happens to not be any evidence that it does and a lot of evidence that it doesn't, right? We've now had decades of experience with GM foods in the food supply and nothing's shown up, right? No, no harm caused. Um, orthorexia, uh, people might not be familiar with that term. It uh, describes an attitude, uh, literal, it's kind of Greek for righteous eating. And a lot of people get the idea that there's good and bad, as in good and evil, about different foods you eat, which is a really unhealthy way to think about your food. Uh, and anyone listening can think of a dozen examples right now of people who have said things that are very orthorexic, you know, oh, that, don't eat that junk food, or 
here, you need to eat this, you know. And the, the attitudes around it are surprisingly religious. Yeah, I can remember back in the 90s when, when people would say, I can't eat avocado because it's got too much fat in it. You know, and, and we're totally afraid of avocados, you know, but, yeah, but, but along that line. Yeah. Uh, did you want to comment on, on that? Probably, yeah. Yeah, it, go ahead. All, all, all these idea of fear foods, you know, today it's bacon or sugar or salt or the, the totally imaginary threat from GMOs or, or uh, MSG. It's, uh, it's much easier to frighten people than it is to educate them. <laughs> You're preaching to the choir on that one. I, I, um, I that one would resonate with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the chapters, my favorite chapters in the book was the myth-busting chapter because you didn't just bust myths. You sometimes confirmed them or said there's mixed results depending on, upon what you believe. And I don't want to go too much into a spoiler here, but yeah. one of the things I learned that I didn't know before was that uh, bread doesn't go stale because it dries out. Isn't that wild? What's up? Yeah, what's up with that? Yeah, it's actually absorbing water molecules and it's changing the structure of the bread. <laughs> so the bread, stale bread actually weighs more than fresh bread. That's really weird. I, I got to, because I've been doing exactly the opposite. I've been trying to, trying to, uh, you know, maybe put a few drops of water in the bag to make it stay better longer. <laughs> I'm making the problem worse. The other one that, that was in there was that you can't check the temperature of a steak by pushing it. And now I worked in a restaurant for a long time. And I could tell you a medium rare from a rare from a medium just by pushing down on it. I swear. Why am I wrong? <laughs> uh, you might be right. You, you may, you know, I, I mentioned in there that people who worked in commercial kitchens may have other opinions. So I wasn't too surprised that, that you did. Um, with enough experience, and since you're using very consistent cuts of meat, uh, you can probably get there. But if you want to actually be sure, uh, a good instant read thermometer is the only way to really know. And uh, if, if you're already a, an experienced commercial line cook and you want to prepare your steak that way, I'm not going to tell you you can't. But uh, <laughs> people at home, I'll tell you, getting a really good instant read thermometer will transform you into a much better cook. Oh, there you go. I, I made carne asada for Donny Osmond. So, Hey, can't, can't complain. Wow, so okay. <laughs> yeah, I worked at a place that was by a dinner theater and I brought food for Mickey Rooney, the Landers sisters, um, Cloris Leachman, a whole bunch of pro golfers, a couple politicians, pretty cool. But anyway, I digress. Um, we're here on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Craig Good about his book, Relax and Enjoy Your Food, Dispelling Food Myths and Talking About What Really Is a Healthy Diet, uh, as we talk about biotechnology and the way it really integrates with the foods that we eat. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everybody. This is Kevin, and a lot of people ask how they can help the Talking Biotech Podcast. The best thing you can do? Help spread the word. There's simple steps to increase listenership. Now, remember, my goal is simple. It's to provide good information from the experts 
that can help others navigate the extensive misinformation and disinformation that permeates social media and sometimes traditional media. So what can you do? Write reviews wherever you consume podcast media. Good reviews, and lots of them, influence the decision to listen or subscribe to a given podcast. Share the weekly podcast on your social media streams, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. It makes a huge difference when you like or retweet some of the work we do. Or support the podcast with a donation on Patreon. There have been a lot of low-dollar donors lately, and that's huge. They add up really fast. Think of a donation to put science into the ears of more listeners, because every cent goes into boosting posts in social media and advertising in those spaces. It's in an attempt to cast a wider net and find new listeners. I can't tell you how many people say, I can't believe I just found this and now I have 100, well, 300 episodes to go through. So whatever you do, your efforts are very much appreciated. My interests are simply to produce exceptional media with compelling guests and fortify your ability to engage in social media and around the dinner table. I want to provide you with the content and the communication strategies to combat false information, as well as share the beautiful stories of science and technology. Plus, the guests are super interesting, too. So, as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. I really appreciate it. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Craig Good, and he's the author of Relax and Enjoy Your Food. And it's a new book that tell, talks about our relationship with food more than the food itself. So no, no such thing as bad food, just bad diets. And that's the thesis of the whole thing. But you still should buy it anyway. Um, let's talk about um, one of the important points in, in the text. And that was one of the best guidelines was not necessarily being a good food consumer, but being a good science consumer. Can you give me an idea of what you mean by that? Uh, you caught me slipping in a side serving of skepticism in the book there. Huh? <laughs> uh, yeah. Understanding how to be a good science consumer will really help because it's so easy to read an article about the latest study, right? And think, oh, I need to change the way I eat because of that. And, well, no, you probably shouldn't. You should wait for the consensus uh, because exploring at the edges of knowledge is a very noisy thing. I mean, you're aware of that, that idea that most published studies are actually false, right? That, that they don't replicate or something happens. That's okay. I try to make people feel good about that. That's what exploring looks like. What you really want is to stay on the established railroad tracks where the exploring has already been done and uh, follow the real consensus from the experts. Yeah, that was an important point that you brought up the Ionotis work because, yeah, I, I have my problems with that in a way because um, so much is replicable and good science grows that his meta-analysis or his thoughts in that analysis are used now too much by the, the anti-science folks to throw good science under the bus by making the sweeping statement, well, I can't believe most of it anyway. And I think you distill it correctly, but I think that others still use it kind of maliciously. Yeah, and uh, 
take evidence that science works and try to say that it's evidence that science doesn't work. It's a self-correcting right. process. <laughs> and that's what that, correction looks like out on the edges. That's right. And then that's why it's okay if it's wrong because we eventually get to the truth. It's not a uh, tool necessarily to find the truth with a capital T, but it's a tool to help us get there. And and it's a long road, you know, and, and, and as you know. Uh, the other thing liked it, uh, that I do use in the book is airplanes. John, I've, I've also been a private pilot and airplanes spend most of their time off course. Not by much, but you're always making little course corrections. And that's just how it works. And you always get to your airport and it's fine. Well, one of the things that you brought up in the book that I never really thought about was that if a diet has its name, it's probably bad <laughs> or probably you know not credible. And when you think about it, it's South Beach diet, grapefruit diet, this diet, that diet, this diet, that really that's pretty true. Because the ones that were happening in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and double lots and teens have never really stuck around. Um, one in particular is the paleo diet. And what are some of the red flags that come up there? Okay. <laughs> um, let me back up just a little bit. And I'll say what, what I think is the description of a healthy diet, which is to enjoy a variety of foods, mostly plants including plenty of fruits and veggies, not too much and not too little. And any advice much more specific than that usually comes from someone who's selling something. Uh, so when people, when diets get named, that almost guarantees that somebody made it up because we name things that we invent, right? I don't have a name for this diet I just described you because it's really just the old consensus. <laughs> the and good diet. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really do not want to be anybody's guru. One of the things I warn about is do not trust gurus. But um, but yeah, it would, be a, it would be a good lowercase g diet. Um, so a paleo is kind of the poster child for the fear of modernity because it starts with this idea that somehow, for some reason that's not clear, everything was better in the Paleolithic. I I really doubt that's the case. I don't think there's any evidence that anything was better. Um, but it gets even funnier because there is no, there was no one Paleolithic diet, right? There were a number of diets because humans are omnivores. You know, we're diet-wise, we're a lot like pigs. We can eat just about anything, which is why we're all over the planet. And so there were a number of paleo diets. But even if you knew what one of them was, you couldn't eat it now because none of the ingredients exist. You know, we've kept evolving and we've made our food evolve very rapidly. So pretty much everything we eat now didn't exist in the paleo period. And pe what people were eating when they were cavemen isn't around for us to nibble on. So to me, it's, it's just one of the silliest. Why I, while I was working on the book, I was in Costco and I saw a big bag of paleo pancake mix. And I just had to put a picture of it in the book. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, right? <laughs> that was a really good picture. I saw the picture in the book. And the um, paleo pancake mix is a pretty interesting example. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's why I say, you know, Poe's Law rules the universe. Because I was... While I was writing the book, I was trying to think of a 
way to make fun of paleo. Like, what's the most ridiculous thing they, they could uh, uh, endorse? And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, I'm in Costco and I see that and say, well, they've done my work for me. <laughs> so I guess the other thought would be um, uh, the concept of calories. And you talk about this common belief that a calorie is not necessarily a calorie, that it depends on where it came from. And what's the story there? Okay. So, yeah, this, this one often raises hackles. A calorie really is a calorie because it's a unit of heat potential, right? It's, it's, it's the uh, amount of heat it takes to raise a gram of water by one degree Celsius at standard pressure, right? So it's not going to be useful as a scientific measure if it's different depending on what you're heating up or whatever, right? Um, calories in food... We, we describe the food energy available in food in terms of calories because we kind of literally do burn it. You know, we're, we're exothermic beings and we're kind of burning calories. Now, what's different is uh, how your body absorbs and stores calories from different kinds of foods. That, that's an immensely complicated topic. But in the context of weight gain or loss, it's really just thermodynamics, right? If, if your body has extra calories it can store, it will likely gain weight. If your body is running a long-term calorie deficit, it's going to burn some of those stores and you lose weight. And there's just no way around, you know, that's just physics, right? Uh, so part of my big picture view is, don't worry about how calorie dense a particular food or even meal is. Just worry about your overall calorie intake. And if you're in calorie balance, your weight is steady. And if you're in a calorie deficit, your weight goes down. Oh, very easy. I mean, it makes it a lot more simple to think about that way. And you know, along that same line, you talked a lot about uh, weight loss. You have a chapter dedicated to it. And I agree, you know, diets... They're garbage. They don't work. You really need to have a change in attitude, a psychological change, a lifestyle change. But is it even more than that? Um, well, kind of another book I'll recommend is Tracy Mann's book, uh, Secrets from the Eating Lab, The Science of Weight Loss, uh, The Myth of Willpower. If, uh, if weight loss is what you're really interested in, that, that book is a much deeper dive than what I do. Um, but the basic reason diets don't work is because they're temporary, right? You eat, a, you eat a new way for a while till your weight goes down, and then you go back to what you were doing before, and your weight's going to go right back to where it was before. So you do just need a lifestyle change, and that's part of why I, I, I emphasize the fruits and veggies uh, in that diet recommendation, because if you get enough of that, your overall calorie density is probably not going to be very high because fruits and vegetables are very low calorie density foods. Um, and it makes it easier to maintain that lifestyle. Is that making sense? No, it totally makes sense. Yeah. Totally makes sense. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, cause I, I come with bad genetics and, and, and the only way that I create changes is by being really cognizant. And, and th that's really all it comes down to. But along that same line, um, there's a lot of focus on weight and diet. We know that. 
Um, but are we, how much of it is creating unreal expectations? And how does that influence how we feel about food? Boy, I love unreal expectations. I should have worked that into the book. Where were you when I needed you? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, just looking at media, you know, pictures of actors and models and, you know, influencers and things. Those people are not typical. They're freaks, right? And uh, that gives people a lot of really unrealistic expectations. The idea that you're not healthy if you can't see your abs, things like that. Um, it turns out that everybody has a range of healthy weight they could be at. Uh, the consensus recommendation is to try to be toward the lean end of that range. But really, that's, that's why I say check with your medical doctor before you go on any weight loss program because maybe you're not as overweight as you think you are. You know, being a little overweight can, can lead to some uh, less desirable health outcomes. Being severely underweight will kill you really quickly. So that's something I learned in, in our anorexia adventure. So, you know, don't panic about it and take it slow is kind of the key. Well, another part of the book, your skeptical nature comes through, and the skeptic in Craig Good really is apparent. And you talk about bad advice and bogus cures, which I think was kind of just a walk through all of the things I already have been screaming about for decades. But you dig into things like homeopathy, naturopathy. What's the best advice for people who are looking at this kind of pseudo-medical advice? Uh, to stick with real science-based medicine. Uh, anything that's sold as uh, alternative medicine probably isn't really medicine. Um, stick with, with you know, real medical doctors and uh, seek out the best experts you can. I go into it in a little more detail in the book of some red flags you can be watching for, uh, but some things I just had to explicitly say, you know, like, don't go to a naturopath ever. Uh, forget acupuncture, homeopathy. Um, you know, there's some things you can just list that just are not medicine. Uh, but I know it's really hard because they seem really attractive. Uh, they sway a lot of people. You know, you might you might feel like you're being treated better as a person by your naturopath than your doctor, but you're not getting actual medical care. And, you know, one thing I'm still sad about is that uh, we probably lost Steve Jobs years earlier than we needed to because he tried treating his cancer with a vegan diet instead of listening to his doctors. Yeah, my sister just lost her friend last week and a friend of mine, too, from uh, grade school who uh, decided she was going to treat her cancer with uh, smoking pot and, uh, um, you know, other herbal remedies. And by the time she realized it wasn't working, uh, it was too late. She was already at stage four with heavy metastases and uh, she just just died from it last week. Uh, turned to medicine at the last minute and doctors said, if you would have been here a little earlier, we could have got you. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, that's, you know, no good for her, but for everybody around her, we've sent a pretty clear message. Yeah. You know, that, yeah. You can't believe the BS, but one of the things that was in the book that I'd never really heard of or thought of before that I really liked was your advice on control barriers. 
or controlling barriers. Um, I agree 100%. You know, what did you mean by having these barriers? Okay, that uh, I give full credit to Tracy Mann or her, in her book for that. Uh, let's take the example. People could do this as a mind experiment right now. Picture you're sitting at a table reading a book, and right next to your right hand is a little bowl of candy. How much of that candy are you likely to eat while you read the book? If you move that bowl to the other end of the table to where you actually have to stand up and walk to it, just that little distance, studies have shown that you will eat a lot less candy. Uh, on the flip side of that, they found that one of the easiest ways to tune your diet is to not think about getting any different food than you eat already, but just eat your veggies first. You know, bring the vegetable, course, salad, whatever it is to the table first, and then bring everything else. Just doing that will significantly raise the amount of veggies you get in your diet. They've done this study in schools, just changing the order of food in the cafeteria. They found, you know, if you had to walk past the vegetables first, kids ended up eating more vegetables. So you can do these little psychological tricks for yourself. Uh, what, what Tracy Mann points out is you can't rely on willpower. Willpower is a losing game. But what you can do is just build new habits. Now, that's perfect. I, I know that for me, if I don't buy junk food, I don't eat junk food. And so it's, uh, you, know, and, and, you know, the word junk food, meaning like, you know, things like, uh, processed potato chips or something like that. If I don't buy it, I don't have it in the house. I'll never eat it. But if I buy it, I get lazy and I go, oh, you know what? Sure would be good right now. And so that really works. Yeah. May, may I make a suggestion for a vocabulary change? Sure. Call them treat foods. <laughs> this is food I'm going to have when I want to treat. And, you know, yeah. maybe I'll go, I'll drive downtown to the ice cream place and have some ice cream rather than keeping ice cream in the freezer. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that makes a lot more sense. I, I really like that particular idea. And I think that means a lot because there's a lot of calories sitting in your cabinet, but only about a quarter, 20% of it, if you go there and have it. So right there, you control that barrier. And also the idea that if you're cutting even just, uh, you know, 350 calories a day, which is, you know, what, a, a big candy bar. That's, or, you know, or a couple of IPAs, right? right. That, that's 10 pounds after 10, it's a pound after 10 days, which is 35 pounds a year. Yeah, a good friend of mine just told me about his friend who had spent years, about 50 pounds overweight. And then he saw him again and he looked great. And he said, what'd you do? He said, well, to, I don't like coffee, and to get the caffeine I wanted, I realized that I was drinking a liter of Coke a day. So I just stopped. That's the only change he made. I said, wow, that's a page literally right out of my book. For a lot of people, all you need to do is cut out the sweet drinks you're having, and, and you're back in calorie balance. So yeah, those really calorie-dense foods can add up quickly. So it's really good. I really appreciate this whole concept that we talked about. And, you know, when you... Um, uh, look at this, you know, in, in the big picture. How much of this really is about genetics and expectations? Because I know what makes me feel good, what makes me keep weight off. I don't like eating in the morning or in lunchtime. I eat at night, I feel better, and just that's my only meal of the day. But other people will point a finger at me and say, hey, you're doing it wrong, that's not right. 
And so how much of our problem is too many experts and not enough people who pay attention to their own physiology? I'm not qualified to answer the genetics part. Uh, so I, I will say that people are all individuals. You know, uh, everybody's a little different. You have different things you like. Uh, we do know that pretty much everything about your taste in food is a matter of habituation. You tend to like what you grew up eating. And there's the only genetic things are like those poor people who think that cilantro tastes like soap, um, you know, kind of little edge cases like that. But the big problem, as you correctly identified, is just the mountains of bad advice. Everybody eats, so everybody thinks they're an expert on eating, right? And that whole it worked for me attitude can be really dangerous. That's, that's why science had to get invented, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's very good. Just because it works for you doesn't mean it works for everybody. Uh, it's kind of like, like the, the keto diet. For a while, that was used to help treat epileptic children, and it seemed to kind of work. I don't think it's used a lot for that anymore. But someone took the idea and said, well, if this diet is good for epileptic, epileptic children, well, then it's good for everybody, right? And it's like, well, you know, having a cast on your leg is good if, you're, if you've got a broken leg, but it's not necessarily a good idea if your leg's fine. So, <laughs> um, you know, one size doesn't necessarily fit all, which is why I say enjoy a variety of foods, mostly plants, you know, with plenty of fruits and veggies, not too much, not too little. That's deliberately kind of vague because the combination that works for you is going to be different than for someone else. You should eat food you like. It should be a source of pleasure and joy in your life, right? It shouldn't be uh, something that causes guilt. You know, I say, don't listen to anybody who tries to frighten you away from uh, a food or an ingredient. Oh, very good. It's kind of like the skeptical omnivore's dilemma. Kind of. Because you, you have a lot of the same concepts that Pollan talks about in his book, and um, but just with uh, a better handle on the science side um, than I think he has. So so really well done. Where could they find your book? And please give the title correctly one more time. I will go right to my Amazon page because that's where you can find it. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's called Relax and Enjoy Your Food. Save your money, your health, and your sanity by separating fact from flap to it. Uh, Very good. It's now available in paperback and Kindle. And just before uh, I spoke with you today, uh, I approved the Audible version. So as soon as ACX gets around to approving it, there will also be an audiobook read by the author. Very good. Oh, that's kind of cool. Okay. And then the other thing is, you know, you, you're also a really good follow on social media. I enjoy your Twitter feed a lot. So where can we find you? I spend an embarrassing amount of time on Twitter, and you can find me at CL Good. <laughs> well, Craig, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. I, I really uh, I enjoyed the book and uh, look forward to talking to you again sometime. Thank you so much. And for everybody else, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You know the drill. Uh, go ahead and write reviews anywhere that can, you consume podcast media. Send us a buck or two on Patreon. Even the lowest subscription amount adds up in a big way. And your funds are used 100% to boost posts and social media to expand this audience. And it works. 
So flip us a buck or two every month and, and watch the magic happen. Um, other than that, thank you very, very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.